0: We're going to look at uh, Matthew chapter 28. Uh, over the next four weeks, we're going to deal with basically this is the, the foundation of what we're looking at over the next, this week and the next three. Matthew chapter 28, it's called the Great Commission. What the heading in our Bible says, and I'll read that, and then we'll get to what we're doing this morning. Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 18, and Jesus came and said to them, Father, we need your help. We always need your help. We need your spirit to uh, illuminate this word to us so that uh, what is accomplished in us is is something more than mere understanding words on a page, but a divine work that only your spirit can do through your living and active word, that of making us more like Christ in character. So we want that to happen, Father. Uh, Help us think rightly about your word. Help us take it to heart. Help us submit. And uh, accomplish, we pray, your work in our lives and in our church. And we ask this for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Well, the next uh, the, today and the uh, next three weeks after, uh, we're focusing on our church's mission. Our church's mission. And that's why I've selected this. And we're going to unpack what it means to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. So getting to, to looking at what we've got here in the passage. Following Jesus' death and resurrection, just before he ascended to heaven, Jesus commanded these words that we read. Um, These ones that had been with him, these people, they had been with him. They had followed him. And he told them, you make disciples. That is to say, what you are in relation to me, what you've learned, what you've seen, what you've become as people, what your life priorities are now. You lead others to do the same, and I will be with you to help you. Well, we're talking about discipleship. A disciple is simply a lifelong learner. That's someone who is devoted to learn from another. That person trusts what the person says. That person seeks to live according to that one's words. So the question that I'm asking this morning, and the question really I'm seeking to answer through this Series: What is it that sets a disciple of Jesus apart from those who are not? What is it that sets a disciple of Jesus apart from those who are not? In a in a uh, in a visible sense, well, first and foremost, of course, the distinction is a spiritual one, and it's very much internal. But that distinction is ultimately brought out because of the Holy Spirit's indwelling power. And ultimately, that distinction should work its way out, should manifest in the life of the, of the disciple in a visible way. And I mentioned that, that these are visible uh, evidences of somebody who is a, a disciple of Jesus. So, like I said, beginning today and the rest of January, we're going to look at these visible marks, these visible evidences of being a disciple of Jesus. And these, these marks are, are important, They're important because they they both describe what we are or what we are to be. But as we think about them as a church, they also describe what we're supposed to be doing together. Like what, what what is it that we're involved with? What is the task before us? So it's about becoming something, demonstrating something in our own lives, but then helping others to do the same. We state it this way in our mission, leading people to become Fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. That's our mission. It's really basically a a restatement of Jesus' great commission. A fully devoted follower of Christ is, is someone first, and we've got four marks, someone first who identifies with Christ and his church. That's the first mark. Fully devoted follower of Christ is someone who gathers with fellow believers in Jesus for worship and fellowship. Third, a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ becomes like Christ in character. And fourth, a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ serves in the church and represents Christ in the world. There are four verbs identify, gather, become and serve. And that's really what we're looking at this morning. Uh, We're going to focus on the very first one. But like I said, these marks help us to understand how we as as believers in Jesus Christ, disciples of Christ, are to be different from the rest of the world. And it also, like I said, informs how we we long to see that uh, carried out and worked out in others' lives. And that's really our mission together. So today, we're going to look at Identify. Identify. Identify with Christ. Now, there's a lot of confusion in our culture about identifying as if every identity is merely a matter of preference or or really a morally neutral choice. We're not surprised men who are identifying as women and vice versa, women identifying as men. It's a delusion, of course. Um, So clearly, some attempts at presenting an identity are a lie, or are anchored in something that is unnatural and destructive as an inclination. And those things ultimately lead to despair. But but Jesus, the Son of God, took on human flesh. He came to the earth. He died and rose again to give people a new identity in Him. And that's what I want to focus on this morning, what what that looks like. That new identity in Christ is going to look like something. Now, by way of illustration, there are a lot of people living inside the border of this nation. So how do you know if someone is an American citizen? And how do you know that I'm not, as I am not? Many of you know, Canadian. Well, of course, a citizen will, will possess a birth certificate or, a, or passport, neither of which I have. So I'm not a citizen. I do not have any way of proving citizenship. In a different sense, how do you know if someone is a Husker fan suitable to our area? Well, those Husker fans will spend time with other fans talking about the team. They watch them when they can. They wear red often. You see that. And that identity as a Husker fan, it's backed up by an association, right? I suppose you could fake this, but who really wants to wear a big red N on their clothing or on their hat, right? Unless there's something behind it, right? Well, those are really weak illustrations. I, I get that. But a true disciple identifies with Christ And his church. And that disciple has a spiritual passport and a formal association with other disciples. That's the first mark of a disciple of Jesus. They identify with Christ in the church. They have a spiritual passport and they have a formal association with other disciples. So, like I said, two biblical aspects of identifying with Christ. So, let's look at these. First of all. First of all, a disciple, a true disciple of Christ, identifies with him in baptism. A true disciple identifies with Christ in baptism. Now, sociologically speaking, Christians are a subculture. That said, we do a lot of things that are similar to other groups that meet together, right? Newfoundlanders, that's Canadian province in Ontario. Irish friends, they go to a pub and they'll sing songs, right? Now, subject matter is obviously quite different, but... There's singing involved, right? Friends, they'll read the same book and they'll get together and and talk about that book in their book clubs. But we get together, we talk about the same book every single Sunday. This is not particularly odd that we do that. But I've said this, I've often said this. I think one of the strangest things that we Christians do is baptize. That we baptize people. Observed by the world, it's a, it's a strange practice. And, and there could be many, many reasons why an individual would not want to do this, right? It's not comfortable to get completely soaked in your clothing. It's, it's kind of undignified to be dunked in the water and come up soaking wet and wreck your hair and makeup if you had, had to do that sort of stuff, right? It's not dignifying. Whatever effort you made to be presentable that day, gets kind of washed away. In short, getting baptized is very humbling. But that's the point. Not to be humbled in the act, but there's an expression in baptism, an expression of humility and submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what a true disciple of Jesus does. Now in the Great Commission, we read it together. Jesus said, make disciples baptizing. Now, the word in the original language of the Bible, the the Koine Greek, it's called, baptizo, it means simply to dip or immerse. So, that excludes sprinkle, pour, okay? It's dip or immerse. Now, where did baptism come from? And, And then why did Jesus institute this? Well, to to understand that, we have to go back to his public ministry. But before that, before that, before, in fact, before John, the baptizer, baptism was a rite that was typically administered to non-Israelites, non-Jews, Gentiles, who had come to believe in the God of Israel. They're called proselytes. They'd converted to Judaism. And as a public expression of of their cleansing, they would be baptized. Now, the link between what is called proselyte baptism, somebody becoming a Jew, and the baptism that John uh, initiated in the wilderness, it's possible, but not absolutely certain. So we don't exactly know why he chose that, except that the Lord put it on him to do that, because it would have meaning later, right? Uh, John, the not the disciple, but John, the one who's called the Baptist, John, the baptizer. He had announced the Messiah. He had announced that the Messiah was coming. And what he was doing, he was baptizing those who were hearing his preaching. They were coming to him in the Jordan River. And he said this, this is uh, Matthew 3, 11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And fire. Now, many people listened to John and they were hopeful. They were hopeful for God to intervene. They were hopeful for this Messiah. They hadn't heard a prophetic word. Israelites hadn't heard a prophetic word for over 400 years. So, this guy in the wilderness preaching was, was this breath of fresh air. Somebody is speaking for the Lord. And they came out to him in droves and they expressed their own repentance for sin in that baptism but then a surprising thing happened Jesus came to John to be baptized by him but we read in Matthew 3:14 but John would have prevented him saying I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me and Jesus answered let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness Now, John's baptism was one of repentance, but being the sinless son of God. Jesus didn't need that. But what he said to John was, let this be so to fulfill all righteousness. What what Jesus was doing, Jesus submitted to this baptism as a sign, ultimately pointing forward to his own death and resurrection. Things that would have been a mystery to John, would have been mystery to any disciple. What, the Messiah will die and rise again? That that was, for the most part, a mystery to most people. But in taking that right and, 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 and doing that and submitting to it, he was pointing forward ultimately to his own death and resurrection. That very sacrifice that he would make, through which the Holy Spirit would both join people to Christ and cleanse them. So we fast forward. Jesus commanded that the disciples should be marked by baptizing, giving this public and external a viewable expression to to their genuine faith in Christ. As they were in that, acknowledging that they needed forgiveness of sin, they needed that, and they knew it was accomplished in the death of Jesus. And they needed new life. And that could only be com- accomplished ultimately in the resurrection of Jesus. He foreshadowed what, what we do when we are baptized as believers. We're looking back to what Jesus foreshadowed when he was baptized. Now, we have to, we have to make this clear. Salvation. Our salvation, our, our relationship with God is, is only by God's grace. And it is... It is apprehended through faith in Christ. So so baptism doesn't save anyone. Let's be clear about that. But what it does is that does point to a spiritual reality. And this is what Romans 6.3 said. We we recited part of this together this morning. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So the symbolism is, is vitally important. The one who is baptized is putting the gospel on display, right? Saying, look, Jesus' death, that was for my sin. You go under the water. Jesus died. And in a sense, in in going under the water, I symbolize the fact that his death was for me. Understanding that there was no, no other way to be right before God. So I needed the Son of God to take my punishment for my own crimes against God. And Jesus' resurrection, well, that's for my eternal life. And the only reason I can live forever and have fellowship with God is because I'm forever in Christ. Baptism symbolizes that spiritual reality. Something done in me and for me by Christ. We are credo Baptists here. Credo meaning believing. We baptize based on profession of faith. Now, I want to take a little bit of a side here. Because we all know that there are others who do not practice it as we do. And just to be clear, while I think they are wrong, there are many paedo-baptists, paedo meaning child-baptists, they are very much right on the gospel, and they are very much true believers in Jesus. But, but, say for us, as we understand what the scripture teaches, the when and the how of baptism matters greatly. The when and the how of baptism matters greatly. The how of baptism is full immersion. That's what the word means. Again, baptizo, immerse, dip. So that the definition should inform the practice. But I would say this, the how of baptism for other Christian groups is very much informed by the when. Fully immersing an infant seems dangerous, I think. So I want to talk for just a moment about the the why of infant baptism because some of you perhaps grew up with that tradition. And having joined a Baptist church, you may be a little fuzzy as to, well, why do we make such a big deal about this? Why does it matter that much? So infant bas- baptism, the Pado baptist view, that's Presbyterians, Lutherans, Reformed Church. Other gospel uh, faithful Christians administer this by pouring or sprinkling water, sometimes after birth. Now, I want to make a distinction here um, between the Roman Catholic view. I, I believe their view is in error. They, as far as I understand, and some of you raised in the Roman Catholic tradition, Jim will, will point this out to me after if I get this wrong, but there's something about believing that there's a washing from original sin, which it does not do. Um, so, anyway, the the, the baptist view held by um, believers who who are faithful to the gospel. What's their justification? Well, what they do is they look back to the Old Testament and they see that to belong to Israel, to be a a child of the covenant, if if you will, the boys, the males, were circumcised on the eighth day. And that, that was taken by the males as a sign and seal of belonging to the covenant. In other words, the family understood, this is my child. God, you've given me this child. This child is part of your covenant promise because he's physically born into this nation. So the paedo-baptists, the child-baptists, believe rightly that baptism now in the New Testament is a sign and seal of the new covenant in Christ, secured in his blood. We credo-baptists, believer-baptists, we agree. But here's, here's where I think the Paedo-Baptists get it wrong. You see, to think about this, to, to become an Israelite, you were physically born into one of the 12 tribes. So then physical birth was immediately followed by the child taking the sign. But as I see Israel in the Old Testament, I see Israel as this prefiguring type in a nation of a spiritual nation, a spiritual people of God. So what Israelites administered after physical birth believers administer after spiritual birth and that's how I see the difference so how do you know there's a spiritual birth a credible credo credible profession of faith says in Romans 10 9 if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead you will be saved I took this little detour so that, so that you committed baptists. No, what's undergirding why we think this matters? The order matters. Jesus did not say, baptize, and then when they can understand the gospel, make disciples. Now, I, I have to be fair to, to paedo-baptists. They do not believe that baptism saves the child. They don't believe that. But it's anticipatory. They, they pray for But it's a mark that in some sense, there's this kind of blessing on the family. But the order for us matters because we we see that in the example in Scripture. Now, I know some here were baptized as infants, and that was very, very, and I don't want to take anything away from this, very meaningful for your parents. And I believe they were giving a, a public witness to their own faith, grateful for the gift of a child. But I'm also quite certain of this. If you were baptized as an infant, I don't, think you remember it. And I'm quite sure that it was not an expression of your faith at the time. Now, I know that most here this morning are already in agreement that believer's baptism is important. But more than that, I want you to be convinced from the Bible that it's an essential mark of discipleship. It's a mark of discipleship because Jesus said, make disciples baptizing. Like like a, a, a birth certificate or a passport doesn't make you a citizen of the United States, but it's the external proof that you are, so it is. Baptism does not make you a disciple of Jesus, but it is the external proof that you are. And as we think about what it means to make disciples, as we're coaching and counseling others and leading others to trust Christ, Do not truncate that discipleship process by celebrating their new birth in Christ if they refuse to take that step of obedience in being baptized. Again, we're going with a biblical definition. Well, second, a true disciple of Christ identifies with his church, the Church of Christ. Now, stated in the positive, I don't think that sounds offensive. But if you stated in the negative, it actually might offend. And so I'm going to be careful with my words here. Listen, if you're not, if you have no intention to join a church, and when I say join a church, to be recognized as a belonging to the church family in whatever form that church has, okay? If you have no intention to be recognized as a member or belonging to a local church, maybe, and I say maybe, maybe. Maybe you're not a true disciple of Christ. Now, let me defend that from the Bible. First of all, I'm not very good at math. I barely scraped through the required high school classes. In fact, I failed my children as to coach them through elementary school because complex math to me is it's just a mystery. It's no wonder that I focused on the humanities, history, philosophy, literature, and all of that in college, comparative religions. And it didn't matter if it was trigonometry or calculus or geometry, algebra, it didn't matter. I was clueless. My math skills stalled out at the 12 times tables. That said, in keeping with my elementary school math competence, I do get simple addition. I get that. I'm clear on that. Now what does this have to do with my point? Some people say that Church membership is not in the Bible. So we should not include that as a mark of true discipleship. I'll take you to Acts chapter 2, verse 41. Here we have a demonstration of, of simple math. And here it says, so those who received his word. Now, Peter was preaching. Those who received his word, he was proclaiming the gospel. They believed in Jesus. So those who received his word were baptized. But it doesn't stop there. And there were added That day, about 3,000 souls. So the word added. Now, the initial number of disciples, we know from the early part of Acts, is about 120. Peter preached. And people that were not there before, about 3,000, received the word. That is to say, they believed the gospel. Were baptized and added. Elementary math, right? They were acknowledged from that point on as part of the body of Christ in Jerusalem. Part of the church. Now, you might ask, and, and I ask myself this question, how do we know that these people continued to be recognized as part of the church going forward? I'll just give you a couple of examples from the New Testament. One in the book of Acts is Acts chapter 6. Uh, there, it tells us about some widows, widows who were members of the Jerusalem church. They were recognized as belonging to the Jerusalem church. They felt neglected. And if they felt neglected, Then it implies that the responsibility, there was some measure of responsibility in the part of the church. And for the church to be responsible for someone, they must have been known in some sense to belong to the church. There are all kinds of widows in Jerusalem at the time. (laughs) Pagan widows, Jewish widows. But these were known because they had been added. Fast forward, 1 Corinthians 5. The Apostle Paul is instructing the church at Corinth. There was a man there who belonged to the church. And what he had done is he continued in this unrepentant sin. It was an adulterous and incestuous relationship. Horrific. And the Apostle Paul, in in his description, in his his teaching to the church there, he instructed the church, purge the evil person from among you. 1 Corinthians 5.13. Well, I think you get this. You can't subtract something from some other thing that wasn't acknowledged to be there in the first place, right? You can't remove that which was never belonging. It wouldn't make any sense. Those are examples of how membership was applied. But there's a foundation that goes back to the teaching of Jesus, and it's what he taught his disciples about the church and the responsibilities of the church. So when we think about what does it mean to join the church, first of all, we have to talk about what is the church? So if, if, if belonging to Christ's church is a mark of discipleship, what is this thing? And what are we, really? Well, of course, we can quickly dispense with the idea that it is the building. You know, I think we all get the distinction. The church, yes, we call it the church. But it's the place where the church meets. So it's not the building. Uh, the, the Bible word, ecclesia it simply means an assembly. New Testament, primarily used. So it's the assembly of people who share something in common. And so what is that something? Answering that question reveals what is the church. Now I'm going to take you to Matthew chapter 16. Jesus defined it there. And Jesus' definition can be uh, uh, taken from this section of Scripture. It began with a question for his disciples He asked them, this is Matthew 16, beginning in 15. Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Like, what's the talk? Who am I? Well, there were some responses of what, what the people thought, like Jeremiah, one of the prophets, John the Baptist. But Jesus said, who do you, who do you say? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Down in verse 18, he says, then Jesus says, and I tell you, Peter, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I love this passage. Now it's important we understand. Jesus said that he would build a church. We don't. Jesus does. Now, here he doesn't say how he would build it, but we know that from other parts of his teaching. John chapter 12, 32. Jesus was anticipating his own crucifixion, his own sacrificial death, and he said this, John 12, 32, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. So Jesus was saying there, he's describing what kind of death he'd die. He is saying, through his death, being lifted up on the cross, Jesus would draw people to himself. So when the church proclaims Christ crucified and raised for eternal life for all who believe, Jesus continues to draw people to himself, to the church. So going back to what Jesus was teaching, Matthew 16, the foundation of the church, the rock, as he told Peter, is what Peter declared. This is the foundation. When Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, that is the foundation rock. And when you have a bunch of people together who say, Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, the assembly of that together who affirm that in each other say, oh, I believe you believe it. You believe I believe it. That is the church. It's the assembly of people who make this profession. Now, if someone simply says, that's my profession, are they automatically included? Now, I want to be subtle here. and nuance, perhaps, is what I mean. Are they automatically included? N- not according to Jesus. Lots of people say, I'm a Christian. Are they automatically included? Well, somewhat esoteric and, and challenging passage of scripture, Jesus says this, and perhaps you've, you've uh, looked at this and wondered. Jesus said this following that confession that Peter made, that you, he was the Christ. Jesus says to Peter, and really all the apostles, and by extension, the church, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Well, that's a pretty big deal. Jesus said, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be Loosed in heaven. Binding and loosing authority. The keys. What is this? Jesus gave them, like I said, to Peter, representing the apostles and all the church. Again, what do keys do? Well, we all know that. But in this case, he's describing binding and loosing. They open, they close, they lock, they unlock, they admit, or they exclude. And the way the church is to Use these keys, the way the church is to either admit or to exclude people from the church is on the basis of their confession of faith, that which is the rock, the foundation of the church. So, someone says, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. The responsibility, Jesus is saying, of the church is for you to test that. Is it believable? Do we trust that he actually believes Jesus is Christ? Well, what do do you mean by that? And we unpack it. Do you believe that Jesus is the divine son of God who took on human flesh? Do you believe that he lived a a sinless, perfect life? Do you believe that he is is Lord, that he he rules your life? Do you believe that he rose again? And there's there's some pieces in there. If they're missing, it's like, well, yeah, you know, Jesus died and rose again. But he, he really... I'm just grateful for that. He doesn't care how I live. Whoa, 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 hold on. Because in the Great Commission, Jesus said, teach them to obey everything I've commanded. We're going to press pause there and say, well, are you sure you really understand what this, this confession of faith means? See, the church has been entrusted with the responsibility of binding and loosing, admitting or, or, or not. That's what we do at our member meetings, right? That's what we have you take a membership seminar. In fact, one's coming up at the end of the month. So if you haven't... Uh, Taking that, I encourage you to do so. When members vote to receive or remove members, what they're doing is exercising these, this authority given by Jesus. It's important to make the distinction. If Paul didn't tell the church in Corinth to remove that one who is in that incestuous and adulterous relationship with his father's wife, and say, oh, we just we're all about grace here. You're saying to the world, Jesus is cool with adultery and incest. Jesus doesn't mind that at all. Come on in. The church has been entrusted with the responsibility of making that distinction. You embezzle money? Ah, you're fine. You have several wives. It's all cool. God will work in that. Because what the church is is a public witness of what we believe it means to follow Jesus. So if a bunch of people get together in a building like this and talk about the Bible, is it necessarily a church? And I know this is true right now on this day and in other days of this week, all across this land, all across the world, there are groups of people that gather together and talk about the Bible or parts of the Bible. For example, Jews, they they meet together, they talk about a part of the Bible. Not the church. Why? They deny that Jesus is the Christ. They're waiting for some other Messiah. Well, how about Mormons? Jehovah's Witness. They meet together. They they talk about Jesus. They talk about the Bible. Not the church. Why? Because they deny that Jesus is the son of the living God in the sense that the Bible explains it, right? Well, there are academics. There are authors. Malcolm Gladwell, Jordan Peterson. They talk about the Bible all the time. They share their insights. Why? Not, Not the church, though. They deny Jesus rose from the grave, or or if they do acknowledge it, it's some sort of Jungian archetype. Or how about Crew? Used to be called Campus Crusade. They have weekly meetings on campus. They, They do outreach and Bible studies, not the church. A group of genuine Christians meet together at a coffee shop to talk about the Bible. Again, not the church, not bad things, not the church don't want to touch a nerve here, but you go to the base chapel, you hear a sermon from a chaplain who is a genuine believer, also not the church. Why do I say that? What's missing? Crew, coffee shop, base chapel. If they're not baptizing believers if they're not exercising the keys of the kingdom, they're not binding and loosing, they're not defining according to Jesus' words, whose profession of faith is credible, is this really what Jesus said he'd build? The reformers, they defined a true church as the assembly where the word of God is rightly preached. Well, lots of people do that. Where the sacraments, the ordinances, Lord's table and baptism are rightly administered and where discipline is rightly practiced that's the keys they understood there was a distinction between casual gatherings around the bible and the local church that jesus said he would build the church must Exercise those keys. The church must make distinctions. If a person's lifestyle demonstrates serious, persistent, and unrepentant sin, the church should rightly call into question the very veracity of that profession of faith. You can look at Matthew 18, 15 through 18, and it describes a situation there where Jesus said, Look, you've gone through the process. You've, you've told this person who's unrepentant, and you're telling it to the church now, and they don't ref, they, they refuse to listen to you. Te- treat them as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, in Israelite language, treat them as an outsider. Now, that doesn't mean shaming them. It just simply means saying, look, whatever you're doing right now, it's not in keeping with your profession of faith. So we're going to treat you like we treat our neighbors who never profess faith. We're going to love you. We're going to pray for you. We're going to try to get the gospel to you. We're going to try to see how you need to repent. We're not going to shame you. But you're not a believer in Jesus for our purposes. Now, we don't get to make any pronouncements about anybody's soul, eternal pronouncements, like you are destined for hell. Absolutely, I know for certain, the Lord told me. Well, it doesn't work that way. People can spend an entire life rebelling and running and like the thief on the cross hanging there suddenly come to the realization, oh boy, he's the son of God or whatever he understood at that time, but he certainly understood enough for him to say to Jesus, look, remember me. There's no theology in that discussion at all. He just simply said, remember me. Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Jesus gave the church the keys of the kingdom of God to neglect this responsibility, I believe, is disobedience. So let me slightly modify my initially potentially offens- initial potentially offens- offensive statement. If you're not recognized as a member of the church, okay? It's not saying anything about your soul. If you're not recognized by the church as a member, the church should not recognize you as a disciple of Christ. And what that means is, if you're not recognized as a member, in practical terms here, we're not going to entrust you with teaching the Bible. We're not going to entrust you with leading others because you have, to this point, even if you are a true believer in Jesus and the Lord knows your heart, we're not going to entrust you with those responsibilities because you are as yet unaccountable. And Jesus said, exercise the keys of the kingdom. Like I said, the state of your soul between you and God, but disciples, fully devoted followers of Christ are to be known by our formal association with those who say, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the Living God. Now let me wrap this up. I think most people here remember, or at least are aware, of the evangelistic ministry of Billy Graham in the last century. According to their website, and this is the the language they use, there were there have been, as a result of their ministry, 2.2 million decisions for Christ. 2.2 million decisions. Now, I, I don't want to discredit any of the many genuine conversions that took place because of their gospel proclamation. There was great work done, okay? And I'm thanking God for that. I know people who came to faith watching Billy Graham on TV. I know a pastor who I went to seminary with who, who, who came to faith in Christ as a result of, of hearing Billy Graham. So I'm not saying the gen, uh, there's not genuine conversion. Faithful church members today, but hear me on this. I do not believe it was ever their intention, but the mass evangelism through their crusades and now their internet ministry, I believe has had the effect of separating Christian conversion from discipleship. And the Bible doesn't do that. When you celebrate 2.2 million decisions for Christ because they walked the aisle, if you're old enough to remember the crusades, Billy Graham saying the buses will wait, just come, just as I am, was played over and over and over again kind of mock that today, but it was heartfelt, in many cases, genuine repentance. And where those people ended up in, in local churches, wonderful. But so many, so many of those people who, who walked the aisle, filled out a decision card, called the hotline, nothing changed. They never darkened the door of a gospel-proclaiming church where they could be baptized, let alone join it. Now, if those people today are sitting in their living rooms or doing whatever they're doing today, have nothing to do with the church, and remember back when Billy Graham said, welcome to the family of God. Could he be sure? Is that how Jesus defined it? We're doing this series because we want to think rightly about what is discipleship. Someone's decision in a coffee shop to trust Jesus because they prayed the sinner's prayer. Well, that's, that's wonderful. But I would say this. The only way that you know that they're a disciple of Jesus, the only way that you can see that they're genuinely converted, their life has changed, that they actually trust Christ as Lord, is it that there's a pattern of submission, however long it takes to say, I need to follow Christ and be baptized. I need a group of people to be identified with. Again, seen many professions of faith where nothing at all changed. Now, of course, God knows whom those whom he saves. Uh, like I said, we don't get to make eternally binding pronouncements on the state of someone's soul. That said, we, we, the local church, cannot separate Christian faith from Christian obedience. Jesus pointed out the absurdity of thinking that way when he, told the people, why do you call me Lord, Lord? And do not do what I tell you. The rhetorical question is, if you call me Lord, but you don't obey me, what does Lord mean? Jesus gave the church the responsibility of binding and loosing. We should not affirm the faith of people who say they believe <laughs> that they believe Jesus but who will not trust him as Lord. But at the same time, it does not mean we should shame them either. And I know this morning, some of you here are on the fence. The facts about Jesus, they make sense to you. You, in your mind, in your heart, you acknowledge who he is. You acknowledge what he has done for you in dying for sin and rising again. But you're not sure, you're ready to follow him in that sense. And if that's you, hear me on this. I am so very glad that you're here that's part of our mission. See, our responsibility before the Lord as a church our joy is to lead you there. And whether that takes months or years. Years. If you belong to the Lord, that at some point, at some point we trust that that the belief in your heart will actually show it and work it out in practice. And I know several church members, and I've experienced this over the years, took years, years, friends of the church, delighted to have them here. With joy, we greet each other in the Lord's day. So you haven't, haven't yet taken that step. Don't run away. We're not going to twist your arm. Well, invite. I'm not going to shame you for not joining the church or not being baptized. That's the Holy Spirit's job to convince you in the heart, to to bring you to that place you say, you know what? I'm a believer in Jesus. I I think I need to be baptized. And we'll say what the scripture says. If you're not there yet, please don't run away. I'm not going to cajole you, twist your arm. Holy Spirit will work in you, we trust. Like I said, we'll simply hold out the invitation in the gospel to follow Jesus. We'll send out invites to our membership seminar. We've got one in uh, three weeks. So if at any given time there are 50 or 100 or more people here who have not yet baptized and joined, fine. If If you are hearing about Jesus, if you're hearing the word of God, I know what that will do. It'll eventually draw you or at some point repel you. And that's in the Lord's hands. But disciples of Jesus this morning, those of you who, are, who desire to be fully devoted to follow him, our identity is and will forever be in Christ. So we let it be known that while we wait for him to return, we will identify with Christ and many have already done so, and we will seek to lead others to do the same. It is our mission. Join me in it. Let's pray. Father, um, thank you so much that our salvation is based entirely on your grace and not on our efforts. We know that baptism and joining a church isn't going to fundamentally change our status with you. It only gives evidence to the status that we have. It's an external marker. It's an important one, but it is an external marker. I pray for all those who are in the sound of my voice who are as yet unbelieving. Lord, that you would open their eyes to Jesus, the Son of God, crucified for sin. For our crimes against you, Father, for our rebellion. Father, that you'd open their eyes, their hearts to acknowledge their need for a Savior in Jesus and trust that in as much as He went to the cross, was crucified, died, buried, and rose again, Father, faith in Him puts them, all of us, in a new place as children of yours. Lord, I want those who are far from you to be brought near. So I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would do that work. We have no right to cajole or berate anyone. Lord, you, you do the drawing. You do the saving. But Father, you call us to be faithful witnesses of what your word says. And so I pray, keep us faithful to continue to seek, to lead people to full devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. All glory belongs to the Lord Jesus, Father, and we pray it in his name. Amen.